you, Arlene. I recall uh, my very first trip to the Holy Land, the country part. When you go on a trip to the Holy Land, usually it's divided up in two phases, if you will, the country part and the city part. You usually spend half your trip in the Galilee and up in the north, and then the other half you spend in Jerusalem. But this was the country part. You just imagine these rolling green hills, the lake on your right side if you're traveling north, the hills on the left. And our guide kept pointing out these beautiful, what looked like hand-built rock walls just biting off these squares. You know, all of them about this high or so. And this beautiful white stone, this, this stone that is all through, all out Israel. And they were the size of bowling balls to the size of medicine balls to the size of exercise balls, bigger to smaller and just stacked, you know, beautifully. And our guide pointed out that what those were were from various, uh, over, over the ages, they were all from various farms. And all of those stones that built the wall were the stones that were cleared from the fields. And then he went on and he explained to us that it is said that the angel that was in charge of distributing stones throughout the earth got God's directions backwards. Put one in Israel in the land of milk and honey, put the other nine throughout the rest of the world. But he got it backwards. He put all nine in Israel and only put one in the rest of the world. There's stone all over the place. And that explained it, driving on the road, these walls after walls after walls. When you get to Jerusalem, uh, today in modern Jerusalem, if you wanna build a new building, you have to build it out of Jerusalem stone or at least have the facade being the, what they call Jerusalem stone, this white stone. That's how much they have of it. They could even make a law that you have to use it in all of your buildings. And I think of that when I think of words like stumbling stone in the Bible, especially when you come across stumbling stone or stumbling block. It's used dozens of times in the New Testament. There are like four different, well, three, at least three that I know of, three different Greek words for stumbling stone. And it, and it, and it occurs to me for an entire humanity who walked everywhere they went in a land cluttered by stones, that a stumbling stone was a very uh, ever-present reality to them that may not be to us living in the 21st century who don't walk enough and all of our roads are paved. We don't come across all of a sudden a stone the size of a medicine ball that you have to walk around. Or if you're not looking, a stone the size of a bowling ball and end up what? Stumbling over it. So when I started this series and I told you, we'll go back to our, our key verse here where Paul says, but we proclaim Christ crucified. To the world, foolishness. But to the believer, to the Jew, to the believer, it's a what? It's a stumbling block. When I started, I thought I'd have a clear line of demarcation between the world looking at it as foolishness and believers looking at it as a stumbling block. And I thought I could do a few on foolishness and then switch to stumbling block. But we're about to cross up, uh, that point of demarcation. And I found out that as I'm reading, maybe foolishness is not a bad way to describe what believers feel when we look at the cross. 
either foolishness or a stumbling block depending on what's happening. So we've talked about, about the cross being a way of understanding power. That one of the stumbling blocks that the church faces and one of the uh, foolish parts of the cross with the world is the understanding of power and an idea of the paradigm of power. Remember we first started by saying that the cross itself, the actual object, has no power in and of itself. The power is what he did on it, amen? The power is the transaction that took place on it. The complete atonement for our sin, it is finished. That's where the power of the cross lies. But the power of this world is understood completely different than the power of the creator, the recreator, and the power of the cross. When it comes to this world, it's strength exercised. It's might exercised. In this world, might makes what? Might makes right. And it hit me, just this morning, it hit me, that even the event itself, the crucifixion itself, we preach Christ crucified, but that's foolishness to the world and a stumbling block to Jews, a stumbling block to believers. It hit me at this, uh, this morning that even the event itself is a complete collision, if you will, of the paradigms of power. Jesus was crucified at the hands of the mightiest empire in the history of the world and probably of the future of the world. All of that might came together to put to death this one man, this one simple little country rabbi from Galilee. And Jesus, with all the power given to him by the Father, all the power of the creation of the world, he uses not one iota of it to get himself out of it, which he could have. The power of creation is not used for victory as a power over that putting aside the power. You with me? He took that power and he set it aside. He set it completely aside. He could have used it because certainly his power is mightier than the Roman or the religious power that hung him on that cross, amen? But he didn't. He set it completely aside. So the power of creation is not used for victory. It is not used. He condescends, if you will. He takes on the humility, and he took it, according to Paul in Philippians, all the way to the cross. A couple weeks ago in communion, I mentioned a book by Dr. Gregory Boyd called The Myth of a Christian Nation. We're gonna refer back to this book a little bit, but I wanna introduce you to the concept or the paradigm of, of what I was talking about last week and what I wanna move on from, and his words are much more eloquent than mine. The two paradigms of power, the world's power, the reason that the world looks upon the cross, the cross as foolishness is because the world exercises power over. They exercise power from the top down. The mightiest is where? is on top, and they stay on top by exercising their power over everyone who's below them. The weaker, the poorer, the unhealthier, the less mighty, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan. And it makes sense in a world like this. In a world that we're born into that we have to protect ourselves from from the day that we take our first breath, 
It makes sense, this paradigm of power. Why? Think about what it brings us. It brings us uh, temporal safety, amen? It can keep us safe. Uh, it, 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 it seems that it can bring about assent and cooperation. Fear is a great motivator to get everybody on board, isn't it? And it seems that you can get what you want if you could make people afraid and be able to coerce them. There is an order in that protection. There's a safety that is appealing to humans. I'm saying everybody, not just the world. Stumbling block and foolishness. But then there's Jesus, who doesn't exercise power over. He exercises power under. This is the way that Dr. Boyd puts it and the way to be able to distinguish between the two. It brings no guarantee of any of the temporal safety that the power over brings. It brings absolutely no guarantee. In fact, up against, when it's up against the other, it seems weak. It seems like it's always losing. The ultimate expression, the ultimate expression of power under is martyrdom, while the ultimate expression of power over is empire. With me? And that's where this beautiful quote comes, to, comes from when he talks about the foot washing and why I quoted it a couple weeks ago. Would we be able to use all the power of creation given to us to wash the feet of one you know is betraying you? Jesus does not exercise by the power of the sword, power over. He exercises by the power of the towel, power under. See, the religious of the day were always looking for signs, weren't they? They were always asking for signs. A Jew always asked for what? Jesus said, you guys, you leaders, you religious leaders, you're always looking for signs. What are they looking for when they're asking for signs? They're looking for the power of God, aren't they? The problem is, is that whenever he exercised what they believed was the power of God, they always ended up afraid and telling him to go away. Right? He cast the demons out of the man of the garrisons, cast them into the swine, and the swine run down the hill. The man goes and tells everybody what happened. They come back out to check it out. They see the former demoniac sitting on a rock, absolutely sane, and they lose their minds. They were very afraid, and they tell Jesus to what? To get away. Did you ever think that one of the reasons God refrains from exercising that power, the thunder, the lightning of Sinai, the power of creation, the power to cast out demons, you ever think that sometimes that he refrains from that? Because what good is it if it scares my kids away? All I ever wanted to do was walk with my children, and my very power scares them away. So he makes a decision that none of us would make. He condescends even to the point of the cross simply so that we could look and maybe not be afraid of the power of God. That's the power of the cross. What good is it to cast out demons and to calm storms or to part seas or even to kill enemies if all it's gonna do is frighten my children? On the other hand, what would we do with that? Well, if they're afraid anyway, let's just use the fear, right? 
But we'll talk about that. That's coming. Between these two paradigms of power, I searched all week for a better term than this and I can't find one. So bear with me, okay? With the two paradigms of power, even the foolishness of the power of the world, if you will, I have no problem with them. I've got no problem when the world wants to be the world. I do not shout at the world for being dark. It's a waste of breath, isn't it? The world's dark. I stand all day long and condemn it for its darkness, but it's dark. It's proud of being dark. It does what it's supposed to do. I don't have a problem with it. Now, does that alleviate me, I, I guess, if you will, of responsibility for not trying to lighten it when I can? Does it alleviate any of us from responsibility to try to bring a little light to it even though it's dark? I'm just saying that when I look at the world and I see the world using power over, I'm not gonna condemn the world for it. That's who they are. My problem is when the children of the light begin to use the children of the dark's part, uh, power, if you will, now I've got a problem. And we should too, shouldn't we? Because God does. Jesus has a problem with that. It's when the believers begin to tap in to that power over, if you will, and begin to use those tools just because it's tempting, is it not? It's tempting. But when we do it in order to carry out our mission, we should be alarmed, we should be alerted, and we should be agitated when it happens. So last week I left off with basically saying something that we all know but should be reminded of, that violence begets nothing but what? Violence. Vengeance price has to be paid in the world. It has to be paid. There's no other way. There's no other way. So what is it that will stop the cycle? What is it that will break the cycle of vengeance and violence? It's what I want to talk about today. Well, how, how is the power of the cross manifested, at least in our daily lives, that could help us stop the cycle of violence begetting violence and vengeance begetting vengeance? How can we, what, what's one way, if you will? What's, what's one of our contributions that we could do in order to keep us from eating each other alive, from devouring one another. One word, forgiveness. Forgiveness. I was so excited to find out when, when Sam got up to preach and he was talking about the covenant today, the way of the covenant, and he said, I want to talk today about forgiveness. I said, are you kidding me? That's what I'm going to talk about. Forgiveness is the ultimate expression of the power under, if you think about it. The power of the cross and the ultimate foolishness to the world and the stumbling block to the believer. Forgiveness is all three of those things to everybody because it just doesn't make sense. It is foolishness. Forgiveness is absolute foolishness if you're exercising in the world of the power over. See, there's some qualities that living under the power, power under, are promised to us in this world of survival of the fittest. There are qualities that are promised to us. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, blessed are the what? Blessed are the merciful, 
for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Not peacekeepers, peacemakers. There's a big difference. But look at the first one, mercy. To show kindness or concern for someone in serious need. How many people on the planet need mercy? Now, you all said everyone. <laughs> you all said everyone. But do we define it by the way the world does or do we find it by the way we do? Because the world has mercy too. But the world puts a condition on its mercy, doesn't it? The world will give mercy as long as they get something out of it, right? The world will give mercy and forgiveness to a sinner as long as the sinner promises to what? Whatever, right? And as long as they're continuing to do so, mercy will be continued to be given. I will say that that is no longer mercy. Good people don't need mercy. You know who need mercy? Bad people need mercy. But I'm talking to a church full of good people, so who knows? We'll talk about that next week, as a matter of fact. In showing mercy, we can become peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. It can bring peace. To be able to show mercy to somebody, Mercy to someone who does not deserve it. It could bring peace. It could bring peace to the one bringing mercy and it certainly can bring peace to the one who gives mercy. By the way, giving mercy, receiving mercy. Giving mercy, receiving mercy. Can you come up with a better job description of, believing, of being a believer? Or can you come up with a better job description of being a church? Receiving mercy and giving mercy. In our, recovery, in our recovery community and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, steps five, eight, and nine are all about forgiveness. Living the mercy shown us, if you will. We confess to God, to ourselves, and someone else, all of our shortcomings. Notice what the step that the, that the addict takes first is, is confessing how many? All. All, laying it all on the table, completely on the table, knowing exactly who we are and what we're asking for before we ask for it. And then after that, we evaluate everything, every relationship in our lives, and we offer forgiveness when it should be forgiven. We seek forgiveness when it should be sought. But we don't do it until we realize who we are and what we've done. Why? Why do that? Because it says this, if we what? If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, we will receive what? Mercy. Is he obligated to forgive us and cleanse us just because we confessed? Have we ever got the impression that if I confess right, I'll get forgiveness? That confession is what brings about forgiveness? Confession doesn't bring about forgiveness. We're not informing Jesus of something that he doesn't know, amen? I remember Don Pate saying, sometimes we confess like God's up there and he hears your confession, forgive me, Lord, I did this, and all of a sudden God turns to Gabriel and says, did you hear that? Did you hear what he did? 
You think I should forgive that, Gabriel? It's not how it happens, is it? Confession is a reminder of the mercy I'm to receive. Confession reminds me of who I am and how I do not deserve one lick of what he's about to do. And not only will he forgive me, he said, I'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You can count on me, he says, to not only forgive you of your sin, I'll forget it. So that when you come to me tomorrow, and you will, we can just talk about what's on the agenda today. Because yesterday's gone. C.S. Lewis once said this, I think I have it there, yeah. To be a Christian means we forgive the inexcusable. Why? Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. He reminds us of that. Jesus seems relentless with it. Jesus will not back off. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Before you even pray to me, he says, forgive. In other words, guarantee you, have you ever been sitting and sat down to pray and as soon as you begin to pray, you remember something, somebody that you may have something against or they have something against you? That didn't happen by accident. Normally what we do is what? Oh, forgive me, Lord, I need to clear my mind of things so I can talk to you. And Jesus keeps bringing the person back up saying, no, we need to talk about this. There's somebody in your life who needs mercy. So go give that, then come back to me. So so we're to forgive how many people in our life? Everybody. It's easy to say, isn't it? Now, how easy is it to do? It's been commanded, I don't know how many times, that's just one of them. In the Lord's Prayer, it's commanded. In a couple of other places, I've got a couple of other places that we'll look at real quick, but it's commanded at least maybe almost a dozen times that you don't seek forgiveness unless you've what? Unless you've forgiven. So I'm hesitant to say what I'm about to say, but I really believe that Jesus told us all of those things because he knew outright that it was impossible. It's not just hard, it's impossible absolutely impossible for us to do. Number one, we don't forget, do we? Although we try, we don't forget. Have you ever prayed to God to forget? Every time I pray to God to forget, I remember even more, right? Because I had to bring it up in order to pray to God that I'd forget it. So even the fact that I bring it up to forget it, I remember it. Does Jesus know that? Does he understand that? And yet he tells us to what? To forgive. So it's not easy to, it's it's easy to say, it's not easy to do, and of course, the reason being, and I want you to picture this, it's because as we're walking down the road in our daily walk as believers, and we're walking, forgiveness is that stumbling block in the middle of the road. There it is. And what's our instinct when it comes to stumbling blocks? See, that's the interesting thing here is that Paul points out, okay, that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to believers, but he says don't avoid it, trip over it. Because we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about why a believer looks upon the crucifixion as a stumbling block, looks upon the cross as a stumbling block. Don't avoid it like you would a stumbling block in the road. Trip over it. 
Because the road that we're on, the road that we're on that would get us to get, go around it is the very road that we are stumbling over to try to get closer to God. Why isn't I don't feel your forgiveness, Lord? God could come right back and say, well, have you forgiven so-and-so? I've been trying to tell you, let's get that off the plate. Trip on that rock, Greg, fall flat on your face. And of course, when I fall flat on my face, who's the first one I should turn to? So, we come up with all kinds of ways to avoid forgiveness. We start making up excuses. We, first thing that we do is we say to, we, we talk about Jesus saying, well, this must have been metaphorical because this just doesn't happen, right? He must have been metaphorically speaking. Do you think he was? No, I don't think so at all, okay? One of the things that we come up with is, I'll forgive him when he what? When he asks for it, all right? Now, there is some pretty good biblical evidence that you are to uh, um, forgive if somebody asks. There is something about that. Uh, I, and, and I don't, what, what, what I think that it's saying is you don't have to wait to forgive bef before they ask for it. Are you with me? They don't have to come and ask for you to be able to forgive. You shouldn't go to them if they haven't asked for it. You ever done that? Ever just walked up to somebody out of the blue? said, Pat, I forgive you for what you did. What's Pat's reaction gonna be? As if it wasn't hard enough to try to forgive and forget and hard enough to be able to, to, to make a relationship smooth, I just made her angry. And for good reason, right? Because then what I would be tempted to do is attempted to be more pious because not only was it a bad thing, Pat, which I'm reminding you of, I've already forgiven you too. Oh, really? But what we're taught is you can be in an attitude or an atmosphere of forgiveness even if nobody's come to you to ask. Isn't that what we teach in group? Why? Because we spent time with Jesus, right? We're ready. We're ready whenever they do. So asking is not to be an obstacle to forgiveness. We must always be willing. If they come to ask, we're ready, aren't we? Now, I've had experience with, with people, and I've, uh, I should, I'm, I'm gonna quit saying that. Scratch that. It's not that I've had experience with. I've been, and I still am. I am in, on this entire line, if you will, of, of being able to forgive, forgiving, and then all the way down to this other line of being between that and unable to forgive, unable to let go. We all live on that line, don't we, with everybody that is in our lives, from unable to forgive to, to actually thinking that they have, and actually that's even more dangerous thinking that I've forgiven somebody, and how do I do that? There's a very self-righteous, pious way of doing that, saying, um, I've, I've forgiven because I've turned them over to God. Right? I've turned them over to God. And what I'm really saying is, I turn them over to God because I know that God is gonna do some smoting and some burning. Right? Or, if I let go of this grudge, they're gonna get away with it. 
And if I let them get away with it, who am I? Love's not supposed to rejoice in falseness. It only rejoices in the truth. So I've wondered that. I've thought that. I've believed that. It's just that I had to just say it out loud. Most of us don't have to, do we? So does Jesus possibly understand what he's asking? Is it quite possible that Jesus has has misunderstood the human nature? You think he doesn't know us? See, sometimes we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we think of just this peaceful little meeting outdoors. Twelve guys with Jesus just sitting on a hill, throwing out some good metaphors, things that will make good calendars, good refrigerator magnets. Oh, you don't have to take it literal. He was just sitting around thinking, you know. You know how Jesus did, right? He just said words and, and you know, they're, they're nice and they're pretty and, they, and we feel good going home. But what it actually says is this, is that when he saw the crowd beginning to gather or looking for him, he called his disciples up the mountain. And when they had sat down up the mountain, he then begins to speak. And when he did, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. What happened though was, was that as he began to speak, the crowd began to gather. So by the time he gets well into it, it's not just the disciples anymore. He's now speaking to an entire crowd. And I think that the crowd probably got big enough or it had, let's say, a smattering enough of the population around them that by the time he got to this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, these crowds are all from Galilee. They're all from you know, that region up and, up and around. In that crowd, if you will, from Bethlehem all the way up to Galilee, has there been maybe one monumental event in their personal history that has profoundly affected them to their very core? See, every generation has one of those events. The greatest generation, they say, everyone was affected by what? By the Depression and what? World War II. Because by the way, the depression didn't end until World War II, right? That affected everybody. There wasn't anybody that it didn't affect. That's a worldview, if you will. The very first generation that comes after that, a huge uh, idea and mistrust of government, a huge monumental shift of no longer trusting those above us because it was shaped by Watergate and it was shaped by Vietnam. So you get what I'm saying? Every generation has at least one of those events. What about that crowd? Was there one in just say 30 years or so, over 30 years prior or so, that may have shaped the way they looked at the world? By the way, shaped the way they looked at the paradigm of power. See, over 30 years before this day that Jesus speaks these words, Israel was ruled by a king named Herod the Great. Herod had a reputation. Herod knew exactly how to exercise the paradigm of power over. He knew exactly how to exercise it. He he was a puppet of the Romans. He, he, He was politically aligned with them. He knew exactly how to do it. He knew exactly how to play both sides. And it put him on top. That's why he was called Herod the Great. He had a personality, though. 
he was insane. He was absolutely insane. He killed two brothers-in-law. He killed his own wife, Mary Omni. Killed two of his own sons. After a man had been found guilty of insurrection against Herod, Herod had him crucified, sent a detachment of soldiers to the man's village, to the man's village and crucified every elder in the village. Say, mess with me again. Five days before his death, he decreed the arrest and execution of thousands of citizens in each region to guarantee that the day of his death had a proper atmosphere of mourning. Of course, we know him from where? When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent and he killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had learned from the wise men. Do you think that there's not one family sitting in the crowd listening to Jesus say those words that had a child that was butchered that day? Do you think that there's not somebody in the crowd who's maybe just like two years older than Jesus, three or four years older than Jesus, who had a baby sister or a baby brother that was butchered before their very eyes 30 years ago? I'm just saying that the parents of these children are all between, say, 36 and 50 sitting in that crowd that day. The children are all only 30. You think they remember something like that from 30 years ago? Do you think Jesus knows who he's talking to then when he says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus knew exactly who he was talking to. He's saying, this isn't fodder for a calendar. This isn't a refrigerator magnet. This isn't a bumper sticker to live by. This is him saying, I know exactly who you are. I know what you're going through. I want you to be free. I want you to be free of the hatred that was brewed in you 30 years ago. I want you to be free of everything that has been done against you. And by the way, if you act with vengeance, you'll still be trapped. You'll still be beholden to the grudge that you hold. What he's saying there that day is, I want you to be free of that. I want you to be able to what? I want you to be able to forgive. And he's saying, if you, if you can live in the love of God, you'll be able to do it. Just stick with me, he says. Just stick with me. We're told in the Gospel of John that these people, these poor and the working poor, and the sinners, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the thieves, They've all had the power exercised over them. They have the power of Rome exercising that uh, over them. They have the religious power of the day saying that God, God hates you because you're a sinner. God, God despises you because you're a sinner. He, they, they, they are completely, absolutely detached from their community. And this rabbi comes along saying these words, words they've never heard before. This is beyond whatever they've heard before. This is beyond just quoting scripture. The people said, the people said he, doesn't, he doesn't quote the people who have authority. He preaches like he has authority. Because he did. 
And that crowd began to follow him around. In the Gospel of John, we're, we're told by the time they get to chapter eight, you've got three crowds there, basically, if you will, all there listening. You have the religious crowd. John says the, the, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're all listening, and they're all looking for a reason to test him or to condemn him. And you have the disciples who've been following him now for quite a while. And then you have this crowd, these people. These people have been completely disenfranchised by the power over, the religious power over them, the military power over them, the governmental power over them, the cultural power over them, living their entire lives completely, absolutely usurped of their own will. They're no longer living as free. And Jesus says these words in John 8 and verse 28. He says, when you've lifted up the son of man, then you'll realize that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the father instructed me. And then in verse 30, he says, and saying these things, many began to believe in him. That crowd, that crowd disenfranchised by the power over religion of the day, by the power over government of the empire, all he had to do was mention the cross once and they begin to believe. All he needs to do is to possibly introduce what power under looks like when you've lifted up the son of man. As soon as he mentions the cross just once, they begin to what? They begin to believe. So now you come back to this impossible act. See, if one act of mercy, one act of forgiveness can forgive all that we've been, all that we are, and all that we ever will be, then it could be also done in our lives, is what he's saying. Right? His ultimate presence, God's ultimate presence on earth, he ultimately wants his presence where? In us. So it's almost like Jesus is warning us, Go ahead, let me live in you, but you're not gonna be able to think the way you used to. I was talking to, to somebody I hadn't talked to in a long time, and she just lost her husband, and I was just talking to her about him. And, he would, and she was talking about his experience, you know, his experience from his life and his experience being born again. And after he was born again, he lived that every day. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect, but he just lived that every day. And I told her what's been going on here, what's been going on with us, how we've been given this opportunity, if you will, to be born again. And I tell the people in prayer meeting and I tell you because of that experience, I now walk out and I look at a group of people that I used to hate, but now I don't anymore. And I'm saying, wow, what'd you do that to me for? Remember? prayer meeting, I used to be able to walk away from the Pharisees, leave them in their ignorance, leave them in their arrogance. But Jesus didn't. And this time through John, I noticed that he didn't. I said, dang. Can I have just one enemy? Jesus said, you could have many enemies, but you're gonna have to what? You're gonna have to forgive them. You're gonna have to love them. If you're gonna let me live in you, you're going to have to. 
See, that's not Jesus infringing on my free will. That's Jesus getting me to surrender my free will to him. And that's why Jesus says, this is, what's you, this is what will set you free. If you're still carrying a grudge, if we're still carrying grudges, we're not living free. The people we have the grudge against actually have control over us. There's a quote in a book that in our meetings that we look at, he says, as long as we're unable to forgive, we keep ourselves chained to the unforgiven. We give the rent-free space in our mind, emotional shackles in our heart, and the right to torment us in the small hours of the night. And by the way, we're tormented not because of what they did to us. We're tormented because we can't what? Forgive them. Oh, he pours it on too. A little later in chapter six, Matthew six, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, forgive us our debts, well, also as we have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive the others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Well, uh, but if you do not, he will not, right? Whenever you stand praying, we saw that in Mark, if you have anything against anyone so that the Father in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And then he'll even pour it on even more. He says, do not what? Don't judge. Did you ever realize that if we're we're carrying a grudge, we're actually judging them? We're treating them based on what they did to us. Is that how God treats you? No. The power over and the power under keep colliding, don't they? Don't what? Don't judge, lest you be judged. And by the way, the only way, the way that he said the reason that uh, it's a bad thing for you to be judged is because you'll be judged by the standard that you use, not the standard that I use, which that stinks. The unforgiven become the unforgiving. The unforgiven cause a chain. Forgiveness is an event that breaks the chain. Otherwise, we remain imprisoned. Arlene read to us our scripture reading about the the washing of Jesus' feet. Mary comes into this dinner that was being held by Simon to wash his feet. And I took it from Luke because Luke is the only one that contains the parable of them explaining, of Jesus explaining to Simon what has actually happened here. And Matthew, though, begins it this way. Matthew says, now while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the what? The house of Simon the leper. Luke leaves that out, which is interesting because Luke's a physician. But he leaves it out. Either he didn't know. And and there's a reason that Luke doesn't know that Simon was a leper. You know why? He's been cleansed of it. By who? By Jesus. It's the whole reason he invited him. Otherwise, a Pharisee's not going to invite Jesus to dinner. Pharisees, by this time, have already condemned him as a third-rate prophet from a second-rate village. There's only one reason that Simon invited him is because he did what? We don't know if he was one of the ten. We don't know if he was the one on the road. We don't know which leper he was. Okay? But here he is. Simon the what? Simon the leper. Now, Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, he, he points out, we're pointed out to, that leprosy was considered a direct condemnation from God. Now, now, hold on, I'm not saying that it was. Are you with me? 
It's what was believed, okay? It's what was believed. Leprosy was seen as a direct condemnation from God. In fact, they called leprosy the stroke. It was as literally if God stroked you with this uncleanness. And if he did, he had reason to. You're being punished for what? Not just a sin, a big time sin. A direct sin, directly at God. Which is why they thought that all the, the scripture about lepers uh, condemned them. That's, why, that's what they believed. They believed that, that it has to be something bad, otherwise why would God separate us? If you're gonna put them on the outside of the camp, that must be, that must be desperate, that must be uh, uh, serious, okay? So they said, well, if God doesn't like you, I don't have to either. A direct condemnation, if you will. When actually, leprosy was, was not a direct punishment from God, but it was a very fit symbol for sin, if you will. Remember, the leprosy uh, uh, bacteria does all of its damage down underneath, down below. By the time you begin to see uh, actual uh, signs on the outside, it's already done its damage. It does its damage to the nerves that transmit pain. By the time a leper begins to suffer what we know of as the sores and, and, and all of those things, most of those sores, most of those things occur from them not being able to feel pain. They wear shoes that are too small for them. They walk right through fires if they're not looking. When they're asleep, they'll roll over into their fire. In India, the lepers are, live in the lowest of the caste system. So they're the poorest. Rats will nibble at their toes and their fingers during the night because they can't feel it. It's a fit symbol for sin. It deadens, it dehumanizes. It doesn't allow them to feel anymore. So Jesus had seen fit to cleanse Simon of this sin, to be forgiven. But Simon shows just a little bit of a problem. I could have given you 39 through, but it was already long enough, Arlene, so 39 actually says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a what? That she's a sinner. Simon can't get past Mary's what? He can't get past Mary's sin. See, what he forgets, what he absolutely forgets is that even though the law forbade you from touching a leper, out of nowhere one day, Jesus walked up to Simon, took his hand, touched him, took his hand, and said, be cleansed. I'm willing, be cleansed, if you will. He went against the law to touch him. He, he went out of his way to show him mercy, to actually reach out and touch him. And now a prostitute, a sinner, somebody who is definitely unclean, is actually touching his feet. And he can't get past what? He can't get past her uncleanness. Whatever my sin is, is whatever it was, but at least it wasn't as bad as hers. But he, she doesn't deserve this tenderness at Jesus' feet. She doesn't deserve this tender moment because she's unclean. She's a sinner of sinners. She's a prostitute. So Jesus does what none of us would be able to do. And that actually loves Simon enough 
to tell him a story. Because Jesus heard him, didn't he? I don't think Simon was whispering it. Simon wanted Jesus to hear it. So he points out to him, who is the one that is most grateful, is the one that was forgiven most, right? This woman had many sins, and they've all been what? They've all been forgiven, and this is the gratitude that you're seeing. You didn't wash my feet when I came. So it's interesting, not only does Simon's um, uh, Phariseeism, if you will, not even allow Jesus to be treated as an equal, you know, socially. He doesn't even wash his feet. It's like, I'm a Pharisee, you're still a two-bit rabbi from Galilee. I've got to keep up appearances here. He didn't even wash his feet. He didn't have anybody wash his feet. Nobody washed my feet, Jesus said. You didn't greet me with a kiss. <laughs> After he was cleansed of his leprosy, he now still refuses to touch Jesus. And as far as this woman is concerned, he's actually saying, you know, I invited him here because I thought he was the son of God. But if he can't even tell that she's a prostitute, I'm not so sure he is who he claims to be. Our stumbling block is number one, the reason why we're maybe unable to be able to give forgiveness or unable to look past somebody else's sin or lifestyle or any of things before that we can begin to invite them into our circle and invite them into our fellowship is that we still believe that we're here because we deserve it and they don't. This is the stumbling block of forgiveness. Yes, Jesus, you forgave my sin, but you know what? My sin's not as bad as it means. And I'm not so sure you should forgive hers. I thank you, O oh Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there, that prostitute over there. So I'd like to live the life of somebody in recovery from here on out. Ask for all your sin to be revealed. Ask for it all. Actually, don't. <laughs> not all of it at once but ask for all of it in its time to be revealed. You do realize that if all of our sin got uh, revealed all at once, you know what it would do to us, right? It would kill us. That's why Moses couldn't see God's face that day. If God had turned around and given him his full impression, it would have illumined all of Moses' sin. And by the way, Jesus hadn't been here yet. His sin hadn't been atoned for yet. So if God would have revealed all of it to Moses, it would have killed him. So he says, I, I, hang on, dude. <laughs> hang on, man, because there's a day coming when you will get to see all of me. But for, but for today, here, take a look. So we ask for all of our sin to be revealed, to be, so that we know, we know what we've been forgiven of. And after that, there shouldn't be anybody in our lives that we shouldn't at least be able to go on a journey to begin to forgive. And not just people that we want to forgive in order to, uh, for our lives to be better. Not just to be able to forgive our friends, our spouses, our, our children, and all of those things to bring them together. But also start thinking about a church. Start thinking about who belongs and who doesn't. 
and who we invite and who we don't. Because once we begin down this road, nothing will ever be the same. You with me? Nothing has been in this, the, the same in our lives ever since that we began to ask forgiveness. And I have to tell you, I'm not a champion at it. I stand before you as a rookie, as, as, as somebody who's as novice of it as anyone else. I'd stumble over the same stumbling blocks that you do every day, every day. I don't want to be an example. But I do want a church that I can walk with and do this together and be struggle in it together with this. The unforgiven become the unforgiving. The unforgiven cause a chain. Forgiveness is an event that breaks that chain. The unforgiving will then begin to use the, see, if we are unforgiving, the danger is, is that we will be even more tempted to begin to use the power over that is readily available to us in order to be able to maintain order and safety, all to avoid stumbling over the stumbling block, all to avoid being able to look at the prostitute and treat her as God has forgiven her and bring her in with us and the Pharisee to be able to do the same, to bring him in with us. Because otherwise, if we don't, if, we're un, if, 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 if we treat people as unforgiven and we treat them as unforgiving, then we'll begin to use the power over. We'll begin to use our standards of purity, the standards of the way marks, standards of doctrine, and to begin to exercise it over people. It's not that forgiveness has not been provided for. Forgiveness has been provided for if we're unable to forgive others. It's, it's, it's the Simon in us that fails to grasp it because we really believe that we're not as bad as the prostitutes. We really believe that we're not as bad as the tax collectors. We really believe that there are always worse sinners out there. And where we need to begin with forgiveness is where? Right here. We can forgive the inexcusable in others because he forgave the inexcusable in us. We had no excuse. Excuse is a prison, unforgiveness is a prison, grudges are a prison. I wanna be free of that, I want you to be free of it. Jesus wants us to be free of it. Amen? Thanks for hanging in there. Thanks for hanging in there. The paradigms of power, if you will.